I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. It's the last show of the year, and what a year it's been. Hello, my darlings. This is the Charity Flower Show, and I am the Drag Queen Gardener. It's the greatest garden show in the world. There's been a very special project in the works, the transformation of a huge green space into one of the largest gardening projects in Europe. It's the future of gardening. It's uh, employment for the young people and... Somewhere for the people in the local area to come to. Uh, it's fantastic for the northwest. Our beloved Chelsea returned. We opened our fifth garden, Bridgewater, in Salford, and we've been working hard to make gardening as sustainable as possible. So, aside from this podcast winning a gold award at the British Podcast Award, quite a lot has been happening in the world of horticulture. And today on Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter, we're taking a look back at some of the podcast's most memorable moments. And we're also peeking into next year with some of the UK's best garden designers. They'll be sharing their thoughts on what they think will be popular in gardening in 2022, from outdoor working spaces to going lawn-free. Well, here in the South, at any rate, it's been a wet year. We love wet years in the dry South, and everything does very well. Some of my highlights have been my potted lilies that um, usually die out, but they've been going on and on. And this is the first year with a new greenhouse, and I've grown some indoor chrysanthemums for the autumn. And it's so nice having flowers into November. And while presenting the podcast, I've had the opportunity to hear from some very knowledgeable and passionate gardeners. For example, in July, I spoke to Magdalena Boschoff from our plant health team about a very useful garden visitor. Brace yourself, this is a bit of a gory one. Parasitoid wasps, they are small and solitary, so they live alone. And most of the time, we are not even aware of their presence. They do not sting, and instead of having a sting, this is replaced by a prominent egg-laying organ called the ovipositor. And instead of being a predator ferociously hunting on a wide diversity of insects and spiders, it is actually very host-specific and also specific to a life stage, one life stage of a specific organism. And what they do they lay their eggs on top of or inside a host insect's body. And this body cavity is then a type of incubator or a food source that she uses to rear her young. 
And slowly, the larvae inside this host insect will start feeding on the non-essential tissues, killing the host insect from the inside out while she's still alive. So it's a, quite a gruesome affair. And once they've been in, in, infested, infected, or whatever one should call it, parasitized or parasitoidized, I don't know, do they carry on as normal or do they behave differently? So the host insect have different ways to just work around being infected. They have an immune response where they would reject the eggs of a parasitoid wasp. They would drop off a plant and hide. But the ovipositor or the egg-laying organ also injects chemicals that alter the behaviour of the host insect. So some of them will actually be kind of zombified and they would react in a way that is to the advantage of the parasitoid wasp larvae. I think it's also important to define what is a parasite and what is a parasitoid. That would be interesting because I'm not sure myself. It's quite a difficult word to pronounce and a bit strange. So a parasite feeds on a host, but this feeding rarely results in the host dying, while a parasitoid feeds on a host and it always results in the death of the host insect. So we've got these um, very numerous microscopic wasps as gardeners. Should we care? Yes, because they naturally limit populations of insects that gardeners normally see as pests. And the adults feeds on sugary substances. So in nature, that would normally be honeydew produced by aphids or, or other sap-sucking insects or nectar. And while looking for nectar, they by accident also pollinate. So they're good pollinators. They can also be commercially produced and used as biocontrol agents. I've used these wasps. I've bought them for use at Wisley and they've been very effective. I've used one called Encasia to control the white fly in the vegetables in the greenhouse. And I've used one called Aphidius. That is an astonishing beast. It, um, it managed to wipe out populations of aphids that were resistant to insecticides. So, um, yeah, it's, it all is becoming clear now. Yes, so Incarcia formosa was linked to Wisley because they were the first to trial this parasitoid wasps within a glasshouse environment, and it targets the whitefly nymphs. And the problem with glasshouse whitefly is that it builds up pesticide resistance, as you said. So using a parasitoid wasp, this would obviously not happen. So it has that advantage. And also, you can use it for pests that do not react well to pesticide. Woolly aphid, it is notoriously difficult to control, while you do find Aphelinius marley, and it can control the aphid population, the woolly aphid population, on apple trees and crab apples or um, cotoneaster. On the show this year, we also heard from two people who made Rose history. This could be one of the most important roses that we will ever launch. It's this beautiful yellow variety. Really dark green, glossy foliage. Anyone who's been on a Zoom call where a picture has been shown, there are just smiles everywhere. Zera Zaidi, diversity campaigner, passionate about bringing more people into gardening. She's the founder of We Too Built Britain and has teamed up with David White, production manager for Harkness Roses, a breeder with more than 140 years' experience. 
Together, they've created the first rose to be named after an ethnic minority Britain, 18th century gardener John Yastumlin. I'll let Zera explain more. His story is quite interesting because after a traumatic start in life, because he was taken from Africa aged eight, he found love and a life in North Wales. So he was sent to live with a Wynn family in Asthamchlin, in Gwynedd, but he was just very talented. You know, he became a gardener. That's where he was put to work. He was a really knowledgeable plantsman and a florist. He was a skilled craftsman. And more importantly, he was treated always as a free man. And he fell in love with Margaret Grufford, who worked as a maid for the same household. And they eloped, but eventually were reconciled with the Wynn family. And when they were reconciled, they were given a cottage with a very significant garden called Narhanian. And it was in recognition of Jonas Thumplin's service. And also it's for the, for the history books, it's the first record of a mixed marriage, you know, mixed race marriage in Wales. So I had started a campaign called Weetabout Britain that just wanted to promote positive stories around diversity representation. We managed to get the first ethnic minority face in 400 years on British currency, and we had a statues campaign. The goal was to just be very positive, to try and bring people together. And so I thought, you know, how would you open up gardening? How would you make people feel more welcome to try it out or feel connected? And having done my research, I realised that there'd never been a rose, to my knowledge, named after an ethnic minority Britain. And I thought, my God, you know, there you have it. There's the way to connect people to say, look, you know, you've got this gardener, but also it's a way to get the gardening community really excited about something. And all I needed was someone to share in that vision and someone who knew a bit more than me. And of course, David, please do come in. In Harkness Roses, you found this and it was just, it was a dream meeting them. When I first heard about the, the idea, I was blown away by the enthusiasm of Zara. The only way I can describe it, it's like having a Force 8 gal blow through your office. But actually what happened was, I, I took the call <laughs> and I sat back and I thought about it and I actually got Hanno who deals with our marketing and, and my daughter Francesca who deals with the new roses and we sat down and we realised that actually this could be probably one of the most important roses that we will ever launch. There's something about roses. You know, it might be the most popular flower in the world. There's a universality, there's a charm. But you know, for me, for someone of ethnic minority heritage, obviously also British, and someone who does a lot of historical research, what's lovely about roses, apart from their immense beauty and variety, is that, you know, they've got a deep resonance across so many cultures and across history. And when you're doing a project that tries to connect people, the rose is the ultimate connector. I mean, you know, the first recorded reference to a rose was over 7,000 years ago, whether it was for the production of rose water in Iraq in 2000 BC, to the cultivation of roses by the Chinese in 500 BC, to the Rosa Alba introduced to the British by the Romans, which is of course considered the white rose of York. Um, You know, roses have been around for centuries. The rose belongs to many people. What I would love the rose to do 
is to begin to have that debate about how to open up gardening, how to get people to feel as if it's for them, no matter what their background, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their socioeconomic status, no matter their, if they've got a disability. And also I think what you want is to open up conversations. I'm so proud of this, although clearly I'm, I, I wish I lived in Bedfordshire, <laughs> David would have been knocking on his door every other day, though, so it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, he, he's smiling because he knows it. Um, but, uh, you know, for four years now, I've been doing various diversity campaigns. This might be the most joyous. It just makes people smile. And a personal favourite from last year, we grew potatoes with YouTuber and gardener Mofin Ali. Potatoes, one of the most versatile vegetables that you can grow. They're just one of those things that everyone loves having a grow at. They're a really easy vegetable to grow as well, and it's one for the whole family to be able to get involved in. We grow the whole spectrum of varieties, right the way from first earlies to second earlies, right the way to main crop. And we're coming up to that time where we're pretty much finished harvesting all our first earlies. We've still got a few pots of second earlies to go. And towards the end of August, early September, we can start thinking about harvesting our main crop potatoes. Our autumn varieties, so we've got two this year. And these are the ones that I love growing every year. Desiree. So Desiree is just one that... I think is one of the best potatoes you can grow. And it's one of those potatoes that's bred to be a little bit drought tolerant as well. And also King Edwards, the pink and the white together, they look really nice. They don't grow as big as the Desiree. The Desiree can grow absolutely massive. <laughs> they grow brilliant. So when you harvest your potatoes, one of the things to think about is whether you want to use them straight away, whether you're storing them. Now, if you want to store them for a longer period, a good little tip to toughen the skins up is to cut the plant off at the base, just above the soil level, and leave them for a couple of weeks, and that way the skin will toughen up, and then they'll last a lot longer and they'll store a lot longer. The only downside to that is the skin's going to be a little bit tougher, so you might have to peel them before you eat them, <laughs> instead of just giving them a wash. But um, because we grow our potatoes in wood chips, we love just getting our hands stuck in and this is one of the times when I love having the whole family out. All the kids, my mum, my wife, everyone's out, we're all getting our hands in, we're just digging it, digging away. Let's see what we get. Here's... Oh, I got one, I got one. I you got, got one, you got one, you got one. Get a bucket. Get a bucket. There we go, there's a few there. I get I mean, these one, we didn't plant It's like them. a massive treasure hunt. And the surprise that the kids get when they find a funny shaped potato or when they find a, a massive potato. It was last year, my son found the little baby, found a potato that was shaped like a duck. And he was just running around with his potato all day long. It's a really fun thing to do with the family. There's another one there. A tiny there one here. Why am I finding all the tiny ones? Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Anything else? Yeah. No. If you're going to store potatoes long term, don't wash them. Harvest them off. Take off any loose dirt. Separate out any damaged potatoes. So if you're using a fork or if you're using a spade or something, anything that you've nicked with that, 
but the potatoes that are look nice, you can store those and you can store them in for a good while. Hessian bags are a good way to store them. You can get grocery store trays and they're really good to stack. So what I like to do with them is I align them with cardboard and just put them in there and then stack them on top of there so and then put that in the dark shed and make sure that they're covered in there and just put a blanket over the top or something so they're not being exposed to light. If you're thinking about growing potatoes for the first time next year, think about what type of potatoes you want to grow. So are you thinking about growing earlies or main crop? Are you trying to grow salad type potatoes? Are you trying to grow the big roasters and the chippers? We start planting our potatoes in March. So we go for first earlies and second earlies and we plant them at the same time. I like to grow my early potatoes in containers and that way I can pick as I need to. If you're thinking about growing in the ground, then it's time to, over autumn and over winter, it's time to improve that soil. So adding things like manure, adding organic matter for drainage. If it's clay soil with poor drainage, then perhaps think about growing something, building a raised bed or something, where you can improve that drainage and improve that condition. For me, growing potatoes, it's one of those activities that you can do with everyone. It's that vegetable that just brings it all together. There's nothing like having a fresh potato. Do you know, when you pick the fresh potato and when you cut into that, the knife just goes through and it makes this crisp sound. You can't replicate that with a shop-bought potato. It sounds sort of soggy. <laughs> That's why I like green potatoes. It was great hearing from Mofin. Growing veg is such a wonderful thing. Well, my allotment is always diverting. One could say I suffer from horticulture rather than enjoying it, but that's a professional problem. Happily, my potatoes were particularly good this year, and they managed to fight off the blight and weren't damaged by the fierce frosts we had in April, and now I've got a shed full of tasty tubers. I've recently been doing some research into what gardening in 2022 will look like. Two of the more worrying things about next year are the high energy prices. High energy prices mean that plants grown in greenhouses, all those bedding plants for example, will be much more expensive next year. In fact, growers may not even plant them if they're not sure of getting the money back it's going to cost them to buy in all the heating to grow the plants. I'm wondering if people will actually be going for the more floriferous perennial plants that will give a good display, not as good as bedding plants, but a good one, and without the need for heating greenhouses to high temperatures. One problem that nurseries are wrestling with is a lack of seasonal workers. I know the leading growers are campaigning to have the government allow in more workers, but if there aren't, there could be more shortages of nursery stock next year. I would advise everyone to order their plants early and also make sure they've got enough fertiliser for the year. But on the more positive side, I wanted to hear from some brilliant garden designers about what they think we'll be focusing on next year. Hello there, I'm Anne-Marie Powell and I'm garden designer based in Petersfield in Hampshire. I think the three trends for me are definitely colour in the garden, 
wildlife in the garden and of course sustainability. So the first one, colour in the garden, I've always adored those bold and beautiful jewel-like tones. And I think the best way of injecting this into your garden is to be putting a lot more bulbs in amongst the borders. In my own back garden at home, I've planted about two and a half thousand bulbs, daffodils, narcissi, alliums this autumn. But don't worry, there's still plenty of ways that you can add a little bit of colour with gladioli and lilies in the spring when when the next summer planting bulbs arrive for you to get into the ground another thing is wildlife i'm always thinking about biodiversity in all the gardens that we design and in my own quite modest sized garden at home i have a couple of water bowls which are just very low shallow dishes that i plant up with aquatic plants things like mini water lilies a few typhus and um, some gorgeous little water aquatic irises and it's so wonderful to see that we now have dragonflies visiting, all kinds of pond skaters and a resident family of little frogs. Do make sure that you've got somewhere for the birds to perch. We do this by putting some large boulders actually within the bowl and of course that there's a bridge so wildlife can get in and also out of your little pond. The final thing of course is sustainability. And I think as a practice, we're looking to make sure that we're looking at the eco-credentials of any hard landscaping materials that we use. Just thinking about how far stone or gravel has to travel. So sometimes in that instance, porcelain can be a better choice. So it comes in from, from closer on the whole. So And a lot of the byproducts, water for example, are reused and diverted into schemes and systems that where it's not wasted just as runoff. Hi, I'm Homera Ikram, landscape designer, educator and lover of gardens. I think we should stop and look back to when people had communities and worked together in them. And this should be our first trend. We should talk to our neighbours and work with them to create green corridors for wildlife around our homes and cities. The second trend is that we should work with nature and maybe stop trying to assert our dominance over it. But when you have a history of culture, of plant hunting and creating perfect landscapes, which sometimes means the destruction of what was originally there, and breeding plants for aesthetics rather than usefulness, then this may not be so easy. Maybe we need to change our language and think about nature in a way that makes us understand the majesty of it. We need more words like komorebi, a Japanese word which means the sunlight filtering through the trees and the leaves on them. We do have a word, crespula rays, but it's so much more scientific and feels less about us feeling nature and more about us trying to understand it. The third trend is learning more, taking care of the soil, all it has in it, learning more about fungi and mycelium and looking at the interactions and relationships in our gardens and how we can work with them. This will hopefully lead to us creating more mindful landscapes. I've been designing this way for the last few years, keeping all waste on site and trying to not import topsoil and using what we already have. We created hugels in gardens, which are no-dig raised beds, by using green waste from the site instead of sending that to landfill, where you layer up green and woody waste and then add a top layer of soil from the site and then plant into it. We laid biodiverse turf over our hugels and they are doing incredibly well and are a source of food for pollinators throughout the year. 
using truly useful plants for all types of pollinators and using a variety of shapes of flowers, spikes, umbels, buttons, daisies to encourage a wider variety of insects and other wildlife into our gardens and stopping the use of chemicals. There really is no need. I just hope that we can appreciate what nature has done for us over the last few years, which is keep us sane, and that now as gardeners, we can take a moment to offer a little of that back. My name's Lee Burkill, also known as the Garden Ninja, and I'm an award-winning garden designer, TV presenter, and garden blogger. The first trend I think will be really popular in 2022 is that of outdoor working. As people have been locked away at home during the COVID pandemic, they're now seeing the gardens more as a space where they can both retreat from the home, but also work outdoors. And I think what we're going to see next year is people really carefully considering the layout and planning of their gardens so that there is an area where they can work from home. I think what this will incorporate is some form of seating area, maybe with a table that's then surrounded by all sorts of textured, relaxing plants, maybe even sensory plants, to create a really beautiful, relaxing outdoor working space. The second trend is going to be the loss of the lawn. I think people are opening their eyes more to how gardens don't just have to be made of lawn and skinny borders. I think as people are using the gardens more, they may consider losing the lawn and incorporating things like wildlife meadows or much deeper herbaceous perennial beds. And they can actually be lower maintenance. So if you imagine reducing the size of your lawn and increasing the size of your borders, you can use things like structural shrubs and trees, mix in some herbaceous perennials that will attract wildlife and help provide privacy and also a bit of soundproofing from your neighbours. For more on gardening trends, have a look at December's issue of The Garden magazine, the RHS's monthly magazine for members. We're nearly at the end of the show and the year, but before I go, don't forget there's still a few tasks to do in the garden. You can cut back your wildlife hedges now, the birds have eaten most of the berries, and you can start pruning trees and other deciduous plants as they need it, particularly fruit. And of course, don't forget to harvest and use all your winter vegetables. And we couldn't end the year without saying thank you to you. If there's anything you've particularly loved on the podcast this year, let us know by leaving a review wherever you listen. Or if there's anything you'd like to hear more of. It could be anything from rose pruning techniques to finding your local community gardening group to the history of air plants let us know. Until 2022, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on and I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. 
It's an easy step, and you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer, or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.